0: But basically, if you are on set, this is a this is sort of a jackass hack, is you want to make sure that you are always covering your drink and or protecting your crotch if you're standing around. So, so protect your drink, protect your crotch, because one of them is going to get
1: violated. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip hop moguls, world class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. Every great success story starts with a set of goals. Today's guest is undoubtedly the most famous skateboarder in history. But despite the fact that he's still skating in peak form and that he's had an entire career filled with spectacular influence and achievements, the majority of people on the globe still recognize him for two very specific reasons. Either an immensely popular video game or for being the first person to achieve the holy grail of vert skating by successfully landing a 900. So what happens when your laser-focused determination leads you to finally achieve a hard-fought goal, but 20 years after the fact, that same feat becomes a legacy-defining milestone that often overshadows any subsequent accomplishments? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with the man who single-handedly helped bring skateboarding to malls and McDonald's commercials. Today, athlete, father, entrepreneur, and worldwide skateboarding ambassador, Mr. Tony Hawk. Tony Hawk, thanks for sitting down, man. Good to see you. You too. Thank you. I know you're a busy man. I really appreciate you taking the time out. So uh, I know you got, you got a lot of things on your plate right now. You got uh, the, the podcast, you got some touring dates coming up. Is there anything you want to plug real quick before we get started?
0: Uh, Yeah, well, a podcast where we've been working pretty hard on it. Hawk versus Wolf, uh, Jason Ellis and me and, um, we basically try to, we try to get guests sometimes, uh, but we have a lot of fun, funny stories between us. So I feel like it, even if we don't have guests, there's plenty of entertainment and, uh, it's just basically, uh, it, basically what it's like to be, uh, adults with, with children trying to still ride skateboards.
1: <laughs> well, also you know, speaking of, uh, you know, the conflict between, uh, maturity and adulthood, Congratulations on your part in the new Jackass movie. I just checked that oh. out. Um, <laughs> there was, a, uh, there was a, way more uh, cock and balls in the movie than I expected, but I loved yeah. it nonetheless. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, obviously you've known those guys for, for a very long time, but I'm curious when they approached you to be in that movie, w- was it a, a two-step process? In other words, like, did you agree to be in the movie and then at one point you're like, you want me to do what? Or did they approach you with the concept right off the bat?
0: Um, I'm always down. So from, from day one for jackass, uh, even, even though I've, I've suffered some catastrophic injuries from doing a couple (laughs) things, but, uh, that's on me. That was my decision. Um, no, I'm always into it. And and I knew that whatever they had in mind was going to be funny and not too life threatening because, uh, since I got hurt doing wild boys, they tend to try to Bring more funny than physical on my stuff, yeah, and um even when they explained the concept for the intro i I couldn't visualize it. I understood what it was supposed to be,
1: but I couldn't really visualize how it would all turn out, and it was way funnier than I imagined, yeah, they did a they did a brilliant job, and you know I, I think what's so compelling about that crew is that you know, they've been able to really survive and adapt through so many different iterations, you know, starting from basically stunts out of Big Brother magazine to the MTV TV show, and, and then now into this kind of juggernaut franchise of, you know, big budget, major motion pictures. But what's interesting is, you know, throughout that time, now you have the advent of, of YouTube and countless imitators kind of trying to do the same thing. But there's a very few people that have really been able to capture the magic of what makes jackass work. Like, why do you think that is?
0: Uh, You know what? It's because they do have a finesse to it. It's not just about being gross, but it's, it's also, it's about the, the, well, obviously some, some physical challenges and their reactions, you know, their reactions are not so outlandish and they're always with a, with a hint of sarcasm or funny. I mean, Chris Pontius has some of the best one-liners that just off the top of his head that you're not going to get with anyone else.
1: So, so funny.
0: um, and, and all of them Knoxville and everyone. And, 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 you know, when, when, um, is was it Dave England or, uh, with the bear? I mean, there is, there is such terror that you can't help but laugh and I don't think that would work with another crew. Yeah. But also we've gotten to know them over, I mean, we, we've gotten to know them over the last 20 years. So we we, we, we value their
1: personalities. And
0: I don't know, I can't, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but also I understand that it, it, no one else can recreate it.
1: Yeah, they really like captured kind of lightning in a bottle in a way that I don't think anyone else really has. And, you know, if you take that formula of jackass in the wrong hands, it could really just be, you know, horrible. But they pull it off because it's like, it's so dangerous. Different. And dangerous, too, obviously, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that just goes without saying, but, you know, there's, in this, this influencer culture that we live in, like, there's not a lack of people that are dumb enough to try and hurt themselves, it's not just that, you know, it's, uh, there's something about those guys, and I almost, I think maybe it's, there's an element of, like, it's, to me, it's like watching, like, it's the same concept of, of, of like, a Yo Mama joke, in the sense that if you do it to a stranger, it's really offensive, but if you do it amongst friends, it's hilarious. And oh. I think that friendship really kind of shines through. You know, I think that's a major part of it. Those guys, you could tell they yeah. they love each other. You know, yeah,
0: yeah. And and also, but but also, you're you're in. You know, you're in the crew. You're gonna have you have to say yes. I guess that's that's the bottom line. Yeah, it's like you you, you signed up for this, and something's coming at you, and you got to just say yes.
1: Yeah, it's funny seeing, um, you know, the new the new cast member Poopies, because I, I know him a little bit from the North Shore shooting over there. And some of the you know, he was J- uh, Jamie O'Brien's kind of stuntman sidekick. And to get to see him, you know, kind of right. in the in the big leagues, if you will, is pretty funny. You know? <laughs> and you could tell he was like, I think he was the he most was,
0: eager. He was the most eager to try anything. I mean, I was on the set a few days and, and definitely Poopies is down for whatever they throw at him.
1: Yeah. I'm curious your relationship with those guys. Are you did they go out of the way to kind of haze you a little bit more because of who you are? Or was there a little bit of like kid gloves that they put on in terms of like behind the scenes pranking?
0: Um I, I never well, I never got the porta potty treatment or the uh or the crotch um pummeling when you're standing <laughs> around. So I guess I, I was exempt from that. But I feel like there's just reserved for the guys who are really in the crew. But basically, if you are on set, this is a this is sort of a, a jackass hack is if you're on set, you want to make sure that you are always covering your drink and or protecting your crotch. If you're standing
1: around drinking crotch. <laughs> yeah. So, so protect your drink, protect your crotch, because one of them is going to get violated. That's pretty funny. That's funny. I mean, I think what's so great too is, just like, if you look at you know Johnny Knoxville, is like, let's just call him like the ringleader for lack of a better word, he takes it worse than anybody else. You know, it's definitely like the reason it works is that he's not. It's not mean spirited. Yeah. Like he's he that, guy, some of the stuff that that guy's done is just like, and he's he's the most eager of all of them. You know? He's got to be. He's, he's the example. Yeah. Um, so I think the sense of you know friendship and community kind of leads me into you know the next question there's a couple of movies that came out in the last couple of years, whether it's Jonah Hill's mid nineties or North Hollywood. And, you know, even though they're set in the context of, of skateboarding, I think ultimately those movies are these kind of coming of age films about community and friendship and identity and kind of trying to find your place in the world. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people really forget how uncool skateboarding was regarded in the mainstream, you know, in the eighties and before you had, municipal skate parks and before you had hot chicks wearing Thrasher t-shirts at the malls skateboarders are really outcasts you know and, and and I read somewhere that you kind of considered yourself almost an outcast amongst outcasts during that point in your life and you know I'm, I'm curious I'm curious why that was like is it just as simple as Every culture has clicks, and for whatever reason you just weren't in that clique or do you do you think it was something deeper? Was it jealousy or um, i mean it must have been a really hard point in your life
0: uh well i I'd say there are a few iterations of that but but for the most part, when I started skating, I was really small and really scrawny, and that was the dogtown Z boys era, so it was all about flow and style and and those guys were they were men, and they could they could muscle their way into the air and, and lay back and, and do these things. And I was just like this little pixie that was barely reaching the top of the bowl. So I couldn't, I didn't have the style. I didn't have the speed. So I just started doing tricks. And because I did tricks, that was considered lame. That was like, I was a circus act. That's literally what they would say. Like I was, I, was, I did circus tricks or baton twirls. And so I found this, this activity sport lifestyle whatever you want to call it that i felt spoke to me so deeply and i wanted to chase to as far as i could but i was not accepted within the world of it and the world of it was already considered outcast like it was already was like a it was a it was a a bubble for misfits and so i'm in that bubble and i i'm not accepted so that was really isolating Um, and then later on, as I started to have more success, then I was isolated because I was the top competitor and people were, were very critical of that. And also in a lot of ways, they, you know, they want to tear you down when you have big success. That's, that's the goal, right? That's like, that's the reason we have tabloids. (laughs) So Uh, so they would you know I I was getting judged extremely critically for my for my performances and and even though I still loved doing it it started to suck the fun out of it because there was so much pressure on me Um, and then I felt like an outcast because of that like I felt like an outcast when I got on when I reached the top of the mountain but all those things all those things kind of helped helped me to develop who I became because I didn't listen to the haters. And then in later years, when I had even bigger success, I was already uh, steeled for that kind of criticism and for being called a sellout or, or whatever it is, or, you know, haters on social media. I was like, you guys can't get to me. I've already lived through this with people saying it to my face and in the magazines.
1: Yeah. It must have been so difficult because, I mean, I think skateboarding represents such a sense of community for so many people. That's why, you know, you go to skate parks and unlike surfing, where if you show up to an amazing break and it's completely empty, like you're stoked. You're like, I don't want people here. But if you show up to a skate park and it's empty, it's like you kind of want to skate with your friends. That's kind of part of why you do it. Sure. And
0: yeah, don't get me wrong. I had I had friends. I had a, a very small crew of friends that. I identified with and that we kind of had the same type of approach to skating. So it wasn't that I was so lonely, but, but there was a great sense of camaraderie in the skate world that I wasn't part of.
1: And what's your relationship with some of those guys today? Or at what point did you kind of heal some of those fissures and become adult friends instead of kind of adversaries as teenagers?
0: Oh, I think within recent years, um, I, I, I think that probably the best example is Jeff Grosso before he passed away. Uh he and I had some really deep talks and, and he told me how much he appreciated what I do for skateboarding and that I continued to do it and and I told him that I appreciated that he was irreverent and that he was he was holding the torch for the sort of anti-establishment skating and the reason a lot of people get into it in the first place and, and he was able to to convey that to a new generation. Because the new generation doesn't understand how much we had to fight just to do it or to be accepted at all. Not that we are trying to be accepted, but, but to be able to have a place or to have the option to do it. And there's a new generation of skaters that grow up that the skate park is not down the street. Yeah. There's a training ground, over. there's foam pits, there's, there's parents that are encouraging- Coaches, yeah. Their kids to skate. That, that did not exist in our era.
1: That's so interesting. I mean, so it seems like for every every cultural movement, whether it's, you know, skateboarding or or rock and roll or hip hop or punk rock, there's like these kind of core founding members, if you will, that, you know, in hindsight are regarded as being really instrumental to the culture. But, you know, while it's happening, it's it's pretty rare that those same mavericks are the ones that actually are able to figure out how to make money at it. So, you know, for every Chuck Berry or Elvis Presley, you have a countless string of Black blues musicians that are broken we've never heard of, or for every Henry Rollins or Mike Ness, there's a whole slew of punk rock bands that people might love and respect, but probably never made any money out of it. You know, it seems like you've been really effective at being able to connect the dot to take this thing that you love that you're so talented at and being able to kind of monetize it. But what were some of the major factors that that helped you do that? I mean, was it did you have a real vision from the beginning? did you have great people on your team? Um, I mean, how were you able to transition from skateboarder to entrepreneur? Um,
0: well, I wasn't, it wasn't some conscious choice that I made. I I think that when I, when I got the opportunity to have bigger sponsorships, um, I was, I, I was welcoming of that where other skaters might have, have been hesitant because, I wasn't changing my, I wasn't trading my sense of values. I wasn't changing my values to promote a brand like Hot Wheels, like Bagel Bites, like even Club Med. Those are all things that I was into for real.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, and so, you know, like literally going to Club Med with my family and so, or, or eating Bagel Bites, like making Bagel Bites for my kids. Like that, those things really happen. Uh, I, I, you know, I grew up as a child in the 70s. Like I ate McDonald's and Jack in the Box all the time. So for, for a brand like that to want to pay me as an endorsement, sign me up. And, and, you know, somehow people thought that that was, that was the kiss of death. You can't, you can't have sponsors that aren't endemic, that aren't hardcore, that aren't in the skate world. And I said, why not? Because it's, it, they, those are the, the types of brands that are already in my lifestyle. And if anything, I can use their, this, this is where I made my, my great sort of revelation is that. I can use their marketing dollars to promote skateboarding. Like I can use, McDonald's has a huge advertising budget. They're going to do national commercials. And I am able to show skateboarding in a way that is interesting and a way that advocates for it. And that could, in a sense, bring in new people to skateboarding. Um, but at the same time, I got, I got endless grief for it.
1: Yeah, it's so strange. I mean, it's someone, you know, growing out of kind of punk rock culture where this term, quote unquote, sellout, was just like, the it was like, that's the last thing that you would want anyone to to, to call you. And then now it's like, not only is there less of a... Stigma with that word—it's almost completely the opposite. Like selling out is the entire reason why people start YouTube channels or like brand themselves on on Instagram. Or it's like it's a very strange how the culture is almost flipped on its head like that.
0: Sure. Well, I'll tell you what—the what the shift was for me is that I I did plenty of promotions and and commercials and things like that in the eighties, and I was never able to control the, the narrative or the quality of it. I, you know, it was more like the the approach was, you're just lucky to be here. You're lucky to be getting paid to do this Mountain Dew commercial, whatever it is, and just do, do what we ask of you. And then when I found that I had enough leverage, especially with the success of our video game, I was able to have final say over all of the, the um, direction and the creative. And that is, that was the shift. And if you're asking me, how was I able to be successful beyond that? It was that it was fighting for the control, not just the, not the control, but, but the, the final say, and I did that with the video game. I've done that with all the advertising, any marketing, anything with my name, image or like this, or anything that I'm involved with that shows skateboarding. I have the last word on what is shown and that that's it quality control.
1: It's it's interesting because I feel like and this is largely part of of your success and what you brought to the sport, but you know like skateboarding has gotten to the point now where it's viable for a very talented skateboarder to to basically have some opportunities to make a living, and in some cases, multi million dollar sponsorships, and in some cases, develop their own brands as well. You know you have you have Birdhouse, but that's a skate brand, and you also have Tony Hawk, the person, which is. A brand in and of itself outside of skateboarding, and very, very few people, very few skateboarders, have been able to pull that off. Like, what's the difference?
0: Uh, I, well, the easy answer is having a, a hugely successful video game <laughs> to the point where your your name is synonymous with a product. The the hard answer is being able to, like I said, keep the quality control. Um, and make sure that whatever I'm involved with, that that it represents the same sense of values and integrity that that I have with me as a person. Um, And that gets tricky because especially when your name is, say, a clothing brand and there is someone else that is the the owner or the, the stockholder of that clothing brand, they have very different ideas than you. But at some point, you have to fight for your own name. And that, that's hard. Like that, that's probably the most, besides, besides prioritizing my time, that's the most challenging part of my job.
1: Did you watch by chance? There's a, a really great documentary on, on Hulu, I think about Von Dutch and that brand. Have you checked that out? I
0: saw, I think I saw half of it and I fell asleep, honestly, but yes, I did. I was around in those years. Like I, that, those were sort of the years that we had the heyday of, of video game success So I went to a bunch of those events and I saw them giving out Von Dutch gear to all the celebrities.
1: Yeah, it was like a fascinating case study of how to take a a brand and just blow it up and ruin it. (laughs) Like in in so many words.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I feel like that was the original Ed Hardy.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Ed Hardy took that same model but but was successful with it.
1: One of the partners in that movie was actually an investor and started Ed Hardy. So you're you're one hundred percent correct. Oh there you go. Yeah.
0: I I guess I didn't watch it that far.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um so, you know, shift gears for a second, you know, it seems like the prevailing thought is that, you know, music and sports are generally kind of a young man's game, you know, unlike let's say writing or directing or acting or you can take these creative endeavors and do great work like pretty much until the day you die. But at the same token, you just watched Kelly Slater, who's 50, just Dominate and win the pipeline contest. And we just watched a bunch of 50 year old rappers at the Super Bowl halftime show, like do an amazing performance. I'm I'm curious about your thoughts on mortality and aging in, in the sense that you've been able to really effectively stay relevant and skate up until the age that you are now but eventually you're going to age out of that and not be able to perform on the level that you want to. Is that something that is going to be really difficult for you or in some way, are you already kind of surprised that you've been able to maintain this level of skill and relevance this far? I mean, do you feel like a a teenager still inside or is there a part of you that's like, Holy shit, how am I still doing this?
0: Uh, Ah, well, it's both. And I think that especially in the example of, of Kelly and of me, we're the, I guess we're the ones leading that charge. How far can you take it in the case of skateboarding? It's not that it's not that others couldn't have done it, it into like it, it to, to be skating at a top level at, at an old age like mine. It's that no one, the, the industry didn't allow for it. The industry wasn't big enough and wasn't, it didn't have a strong enough foundation for anyone to make a career out of skateboarding past the age of 20 or 30, because it was such a small industry and considered a young man's sport. So there were already stigmas against that. And it was very much, I mean, when I was growing up, if you were out of high school and adult age, you're supposed to find a job, even if you're a pro skater, that was just the, the, the that was just the, the, the trajectory of your love life in general skateboarding was never taken that. Ser- well, it wasn't taken that seriously in those days. And so it's cool. You did it. you you know, you had fun as a kid and it was, it was basically the equivalent of being a yo-yo champion.
1: <laughs>
0: um, and then at some point things started to progress and we found ourselves at age twenties, thirties, improving our skills. And it was like, well, why, why do we have to, who says we have to quit? And at some point I realized that it it gives me such a sense of peace and accomplishment. And, and it it is my, my main creative outlet and I'm not going to let this go. And and so I was never going to quit regardless if it didn't pay. So, and and I did it through my, you know, especially through, through the mid nineties in my early twenties, mid twenties, I was doing it for no money at all and, and very little recognition or accolades. That was never the point of it, and it never was when I was a kid either. So, um, to answer your question, it, it's what keeps me fired up, and to this day. I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm literally going to close this laptop and go to my ramp and go try to do shove it no slides over the gap. I already have that in my mind, and know I know it's going to I know it's going to bring me joy, even if I don't
1: make it. And do you have a metric in your mind of? When you're going to pull the plug? When it's going to be time to maybe not quit skating?
0: I never, no, because I don't. I never had. I never, I never made ultimatums. You know, never, no, that was never my style in skateboarding. It's like I have to do this. I have to do this. Like there were tricks I wanted to do, and I got them done. And sometimes I continued to do them. Sometimes I just left it at that one. But these days, for sure, I can feel it. Like I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not in denial it's way harder for me to do like a lean melon grab now. And I know that's because I'm old and stiff. Yeah. Um, but if I can catch it, if I can, if I can catch it and I get a good snap, I can make it. But at the same time, there are other tricks like that I've done or that, that I've given up because the risk to reward ratio just isn't worth it. There are, you know, there are tricks like for instance, last year I did my last burial 540. That trick is, is, I love it. Like it gives me, it gives me great joy to do it, but to make another one is not going to surpass the risk of what can happen when that goes wrong. Cause when that trick goes wrong, you get spanked. And I just don't want, I don't want to get spanked. So I want to, I want to keep skating.
1: I mean, you have all these other endeavors, whether it's you know, the podcast or the, you know, the touring demo and obviously you know, the video game and all these other, all these other properties. I mean, with- Well, with that, I guess that, that, that it
0: speaks to more of what you were talking about with the business or how, how am I able to navigate that. I just see what, what I think would, would enter, be entertaining or be interesting or where there's a void in, say, the marketplace for skateboarding. And I try to embrace that. Um, and so with the podcast, I know that between Jason and I, we have something unique. We have a unique perspective on being older, being skaters, having all these crazy experiences, both of us going through many challenges in our life. And maybe that is something that people can be inspired by. So to do it, like we're not making any money doing that, but we enjoy it. And that's what it's all about.
1: No, I mean, it's kind of a brilliant strategy because, you know, moving forward, whether it's two years, five years, 10 years, whatever, whenever that mark, that mark is where you're like, okay, I'm I'm not going to skate professionally, or maybe even at all at some point, but it still allows you to, you know, be relevant in the space and promote skateboarding. and, And you have a pretty vast knowledge base of stories and, and experiences that you can kind of help to promote the sport without having to actually perform the sport. Was that a conscious choice or is it, did it kind of just work out that way?
0: Um, well, that, that was the conscious choice 30 years ago when I started birdhouse because I saw my career waning. It was so hard to make a living skateboarding, especially as a vert skater in the early nineties. So I started a skateboard company because I just loved skateboarding too much to leave it behind. Um, and so I really thought that that was my transition to becoming a businessman. Little did I know skateboarding would make a huge comeback eight, seven, eight years later, And that I would still be on top of my game and and still riding riding the wave. So that was what I thought was going to be my sort of my exit from being a pro skater. And little did I know that became even more successful than I imagined. But I I would be happy to, yeah. And like if I if I start sucking at skating, I'm not going to do it in public. (laughs) I guess that's that's the answer. Like if I feel like my tricks are truly my my skills are waning, or if I'm just too exhausted then I'll just, I'll just quietly bow out and and I'll probably still do it for fun in the background. But I do feel like I, you know, I'm still good at it. I'm I'm still got some uh, creative ideas and I've still got the physical ability to put those into motion. And so why not? It's
1: still just too much fun. That's great. Um, So, you know, your son Riley is also very talented skateboarder. A very different style. But you know, there seems to be, there's this natural dynamic between father and son where they tend to reach a certain age where they, they want to assert themselves and they want to create their own identity. They want to rebel. Parents are inherently not cool anymore. And you know that makes sense if, let's say you're 16 and you're in a band and your dad's a balding insurance salesman or something. <laughs> but I mean, in your case, or in mean, his case, you're Tony Hawk. I mean, was there ever a point in his adolescence where you, you you wanted to kind of shake him by the shoulders and be like, you know what I've done? Or was there, you know, I was reading this story. Uh, Mike D was talking about his relationship with his kids and they're just horribly unimpressed with his status. You know, and then for my money, I can't think of anybody that's more unequivocally cool or influential than the Beastie Boys, but his kids don't care. You know, like, what, what was your relationship with Riley growing up like?
0: Um... Uh, yeah, it's much different. Um, Riley, uh, he loved skating most of his life. There came a time when he was a teenager that he felt the pressure or the, the vibe that, that people had for him because of me. And that started to discourage him from skating. And in those years, I felt bad because I felt like my status or my reputation is is sucking the fun out of skateboarding for him because he, he, there's such great expectation. And he's living in the shadow all the time and he can't shake the name. So he stopped skating um, for maybe a year or so. And then he started riding motocross and that was hard for his mom and I, because when you, you know, if you're a motocross kid like that, the whole family has to rally around that and take you to the track and, get all the gear. And, and we didn't really have the time and resources to make that, to do that for him in a way that would be effective if he wanted to make, if he wanted to try to pursue a career. And that's kind of what he was talking about doing. And so I had to have a conversation with him at some point And, and I told him that, uh, you know, Riley, I, I, I appreciate that you love doing motocross and you know, you're definitely improving at it, but this was, I think he was about 13 at the time. I said, but, but you are very, very good at skateboarding at your age. And that's not because of me. That's not because, you know, you're not getting, if anything, you're getting a, a treatment that veers on injustice because people think that somehow it's easy for you or that you're given everything. And and it's not that you have the drive, you have this, the talent. And I think you'd be able to, to do something with that much sooner than you would if you're trying to chase riding motorcycles. And I do think he took that to heart because he started skating again not long after that. And he found his own crew that weren't interested in who I was or, you know, that sort of thing. And they developed their own, I mean, the, that's the Shepdogs. They developed their own crew, their own aesthetic, their own style. He's not a ramp skater, but he had those skills already and they just started making videos. And soon enough, I mean, that crew has become some of the best, you know, we're talking about Kirby and Stephen lawyer and figgy and, and David Loy. And, you know, all those guys were, were, that was their crew. And they all started to feed off each other. And Jacob, who now shoots for thrasher, he was the guy shooting their videos. Like it, I had nothing to do with that. If anything, I was, I was probably standing in their way in, in, in terms of what their opportunities were. So to answer your question, he, he very much made a he made a choice to follow his own path and to release himself from my, not for influence, but, but like my, my companies, my sponsorships, my, my world. And I had to let him go. And I was proud
1: of him for, for seeing it through. And how did that affect your personal relationship with him? Like you, you said rather than getting you know, a free ride because he's Tony Hawk's son, you, you say he almost had additional scrutiny on, on top of him because of it. Like, how did that affect your relationship? Is that something that he was resentful of? Did he understand? Did that, did that create conflict between the two of you?
0: No, it didn't create conflict. If anything, there, there was this sort of, I don't know how to explain it. There, there, there was a, a sense of liberation where he said, I want to go do this. I'm going to go ride for Baker. Because at the time he was on, he was on Birdhouse and Quicksilver and Hawk Shoes, like all, all my affiliates. And so he said, I want to go do this. And so the, I guess the, the only, the only sort of wistfulness I had about that was that we were going to be traveling together anymore. And, and in a lot of ways, those were the times where I was closest to him because I had, I had him as a captive audience. We were, we were traveling. And so we were able to talk and hang out and, 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 and riff with each other and skate together. Yeah. And then once he went to Baker and he went to Lakai, he was on a whole different trip, literally trip, going and traveling with that crew and, and finding his own way. And so I guess that was the only fracture that we had was, was that we didn't get to travel together anymore. But, but now we, we, we both make efforts to, to do stuff together. Um, you know, he's, he's an adult. He's got, he's got a mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> he's got, he's got a serious girlfriend. He's got a business. So he's an adult child. And, and so I respect that. And, and, you know, we try to make time to have dinner together or if we're going off family vacation, obviously things like that. Um, I, uh, like I invited, I'm, I'm going, I'm taking my daughter to New York next week and I invited him to come along and he already had plans to go camping in Palm Springs. Like that, that's how it is now.
1: So, I mean, I, I think, You know, part of the reason that skateboarding was able to become what it is today is because there's such a a, a rich visual documentation of the sport, you know, starting from Craig Stessic, and, you know, we had Glenn Friedman on the show last year and, you know, obviously has a lot of iconic photos, Grant Britton. Like, who who are some of the people in in your opinion that were most instrumental or, or who influenced you the most when you were starting to put together a birdhouse, like visually, you know, in terms of creatives and art directors and photographers?
0: Wow. Well... There's so many. Um, I mean, I was, I was definitely, I was inspired by the art that was more born in skateboarding. So uh, we had a few key artists then. Ron Lemon was the one who sort of created the aesthetics for Birdhouse. Originally he was from Blockhead Skateboards. Um, Sean Cliver did a bunch of our graphics who, you know, Sean Cliver came from Powell. Now he's part of the Jackass crew Um, for photography uh, I mean, it, at that point, we could, I could just take what I get. But Grant has always been a, a, a staple and, and one of the one of the best photographers. Um, Daniel Sturt at that time was, you know, creating images that are still iconic to this day. Uh, Atiba was touring with us and was really coming into his own as a photographer. So those are, those are all the guys that, that were with us in the beginning of, of Birdhouse. Um, there are plenty of other influential photographers and artists that came from skateboarding, but those are the ones that I had the closest contact with, uh, when I
1: was forming my own company. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's strange now because everybody has a phone in their pocket and everybody shoots everything and everything's documented, but it is always so amazing how much footage there is of certain pop culture movements, you know, like when it was really difficult to, you know, whether it's the early days of surfing or the early days of punk rock or the early days of skateboarding. I mean, there's a lot of, of really rich documentation of that stuff. And I think that's really important to how those sports and how those genres grow.
0: Well, I mean, skateboarding was one of the first... Skateboarding was one of the first sports or activities to, to focus solely on videos. I mean, I, I, I feel like skateboarding was was the pioneer in that movement through through Stacy Peralta and the Bones Brigade. It, was, it was, became that you can make videos and and not have to compete in order to have success or to have any sort of recognition. And so surfing came along shortly after that snowboarding after that. And, and then the rest followed. But, but I I feel like we were definitely on the, on the cutting edge of of that movement. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that we have all this footage. I mean, Sam Jones did this documentary on my life and career and the footage that he uncovered, I am, Still shocked by, wow. you know, he found, he found stuff of like competitions in Del Mar when nobody had video cameras. Wow! He found people that happened to have one that were in the stands or that were at the entrance of the pool. And so he's got two angles of this competition that hardly anyone even has
1: seen. I mean, talk to me what that must be like seeing that movie because, I mean, you're, you're still a young man in the, in the sense that you're, you're still relevant and you're still skateboarding. But you're old enough now where people are starting to kind of look back at your life and, and tell the story of your life, you know, as almost in a past tense. Like, what's that like? Watching, looking at some of those photos and bring back a lot of memories, obviously.
0: Um. Yeah, it's well. It, it was first of all, it was an honor that Sam chose me because I'm a huge fan of his work already, his photography and his his documentary films. And um, he used to have his own. He he was one of the first podcasters, actually. So I, I really enjoy his work and his soulful approach to things. And then when he said he wanted to do something on me, I was honored. But I was also thankful that the first conversation I ever had with him, I said, look, people ask me about doing documentaries and we you know for ESPN or whatever it is. And, and their pitch always ends at you did a 900. And it's like that was just this one thing in my career. Yeah. And I feel like I've gone on to have way greater success and, and more important uh,
1: milestones
0: accolades or milestones in my life since then. And no one really wants to tackle that. Um, So I've always been, I've always declined them. And then when he said, he goes, no, I feel like that was just the the springboard to you doing much more important things. And so I said, yes, I, I believe so. But also, but also to cover some uncomfortable things. And, and I had to lay it out there for him and because I feel like that would be a disservice if you're only focusing on my success um, and so he he dug deep and, and I feel like he did a really good job. There's definitely a few things in there that are hard for me to watch or hard for me to listen to people talking about because there is a whole narrative that that I'm too old to be doing this. Absolutely. And that's hard to swallow when you're the subject matter.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's that's pretty brave of you to allow that to happen. I think one of the the biggest disservice you can do to a documentary is have one of the subjects have too much control over it because they want to strip the warts and they want to strip. I the- had none.
0: I, I, I absolutely had none. And, and and like I said, I, I definitely, there are things in there that I'm like, man, I don't, I don't really agree with that sentiment, but that's the, you, you know, you lay it out there and you're asking people the harder questions and that's what you got back.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, we always like to end this, this podcast by giving the guests an opportunity to to plug a project or plug something that they're not involved in that they feel isn't getting enough attention, whether it's a book or a movie or a TV show or a skater or a cause. Is, is there something you want to shout out and just to give some attention to? That
0: That's a lot of pressure.
1: <laughs> uh, I, I mean, just anything, just something that you feel is like getting like underrepresented that you want to give a little shine to.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I, Skatistan. I mean, I, 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 it's no secret that I'm a supporter of Skatistan. I'm a board member. But the work that they do is, yes, it includes skateboarding and skateboarding is sort of the, the catalyst for, the, for it existing. But what they do truly empowers kids, especially girls, in the most challenged areas and the most conflicted areas. And they, they literally give hope to people who have very little hope and they do it through education and skateboarding facilities. And obviously they were hit hard last year with the fall of Kabul uh, because their whole program started in Afghanistan. And I was, I was very much part of, of trying to help them get people out, but it impacted their school, um, their, their, their project, but they do have other facilities in South Africa and in Cambodia and so I feel like if people looked into what they do and realize how much help they need now, they might be inspired to take part. And I, and like I said, I can't say enough good things about them. There are plenty of charities that don't have tangible results of what they do because of maybe just the nature of, of, of their, of, of their work, and, you know, in terms of cancer research or helping or helping people, you just never really know how is that money being effective. effective.
1: Where the money is being spent. Where is spent? the money being yeah. spent?
0: Skate of Sand is absolutely transparent in what they do. They build facilities. They, they provide education. They get counselors. And they bring in kids. And I believe in it. And, and I feel like we're the, it was the same thing with our foundation, the Skate Bar Project. We are absolutely transparent. We are, we are one of the highest rated charities on charity navigation and we provide literal concrete proof of your money. It's like you're, you, gave, you gave us money, there is now a skateboard, skate park in,
1: in Detroit. What's the current state of, of, of Skatistan, in in country now since the US pullout, Have you had a lot of contact with them?
0: Um yeah, and, and they're they they still wanna they wanna get programming back up and running. They're obviously very challenged in doing that and a lot of their funding has has faded or been minimized because most of the most of the funding in the past has gone to their Afghanistan projects, but they're still they're still doing it and there's still there's still a need and uh, the other facilities are suffering because of that.
1: Well, Tony, I really appreciate it. I know you're, you're a busy man. I appreciate you taking the time out. Um, I want to just actually give a quick shout out to, to Chad from, from Nixon for kind of facilitating making this happen. And that, that's how you and I met back in the day, shooting some stuff for Nixon. Yeah. But uh, I, wish you, I wish you all the best, man. And uh, I, I think you got a, definitely uh, a few more years left in you for, for sure, <laughs> okay. at the very least. <laughs> cool. Thank you. But uh, thanks. Appreciate it.
0: All right. See you soon.
1: Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Ryan Bucci and Peter Buckingham. Theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan, with sound design by Brad Worrell at SoundWag. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.